Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Joyful Balance podcast. You're being entertained here by Denise, myself, a cognitive behavioral hypnotherapist, and my lovely co-host, Mira, neuroscientist and nutritional therapist. Joyful Balance podcast is all about neuroscience, nutrition, and psychology, and we are just at the intersection between all of these And we are just trying to help guide you understand yourself better, build better relationships with yourself, food, other people. And also we are sharing our own personal experience and taking you on this journey together with us. We are not know-it-alls, but we do love science. So that's what we are here to do. Try to educate everybody with what we know and also learn about new things. On this episode, we are going to be very... Um, attracted to neurotransmitters, mm. right? Kind of, yeah. Oh. It's, it's <laughs> we're doing a bit of a journey all around neurotransmitters, hormones, and how they affect your appetite. Ooh, yeah. So that's kind I'm of. I'm hungry just by saying <laughs> that. <laughs> to be fair, we are recording this at what is normally dinner time, uh, so that's totally understandable. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I'm going to try and let you know all about how your appetite works. Um, and hopefully tell you some interesting things that you've not heard before. Mm, I'm intrigued. Okay. So I've encouraged Denise, everyone, uh, to interrupt me when I get on a lecture train uh, so that hopefully this is very entertaining for you guys to listen to. We'll definitely talk about our own experiences along the way. And um, yeah, I'll just get going. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So the one thing to actually really remember is that appetite is not actually governed by just one thing. Okay. So your appetite really depends on a mixture of genetic, can you believe it, environmental and hormone factors. So the Sorry, you've already blew my mind. So <laughs> what do you I thought appetite is because I'm hungry because my, you know, I'm hungry. <laughs> No, so there's actually two different types of hunger, and I'm going to go on to that oh, in a, okay. yeah, in okay. a second. Okay. So, um, and actually, I'm going to get to that point right now. So, uh, appetite and the decision to eat and the action to eat is actually dependent on two interacting systems. There's what we call the homeostatic system, which is basically to ensure that you get enough calories to survive. Mm-hmm. So that's what we traditionally, I guess, think of hunger as being as being a cue that you need to eat because. You like you're hungry, but there's actually another very important system that often uh, interacts a lot, especially with the way we live life now, with food being far more available, is the hedonic system. So this regulates um, your experience of pleasure and reward around mm. eating. So it's not just that we eat for um, calorie and energy and nutritional intake; we also eat for pleasure. Um, And so I'm going to take you on a whistle-stop tour of both these things and also about some things that you might not think that actually affect your appetite but do. Now, um, in a previous podcast episode, I talked about how your brain kind of works and all the different areas that are involved in uh, in brain function. And one of the key structures that I mentioned was um, this tiny area called the the hippocampus. The God, there's so many. There's the hippocampus and the hypothalamus, and I'm trying to say both at the same time. But this time, I'm talking about your hypothalamus. So your hypothalamus is a, a hugely important part of like your emotional regulation, but it also helps to regulate your appetite as well. And there's in fact basically three different areas within that tiny space in the middle of your brain that um, plays a role in regulating your appetite. So 
I could name them, and I don't expect you to remember them, but there's the paraventricular nucleus that is all around, um, that ha- controls sort of the hormonal aspects of appetite. So things like um, your thyroid function, your cortisol, which is your stress hormones, and also oxytocin, which is another really important um, hormone. You've then got the ventromedial hypothalamus, which actually works to suppress um, your desire to eat. And then there's also, interestingly, the lateral hypothalamus, which basically refers to an aspect like the location within the hypothalamus. But it essentially stimulates our search for calorie dense food. And I'm going to come back to why that's important. But essentially, all of these three interact together in a very small space to control your appetite. Now, yeah, go on question yeah yeah the one that is suppressing Mm -hmm. do you know i mean it's genuinely i don't know if you know the answer is is that the one as in it's not your area of expertise that's what i'm trying to say no 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 i know yeah it's is is that the place or is that the area that uh, something crazy such as weight loss pills are trying to effect so that it suppresses the appetite i.e you don't eat yeah it might it's either that or i imagine it works on the hormones um okay because there's actually a lot of um your you've also got three sets of hormones which i'm going to cover very quickly in a minute that also affect your appetite i mean to be honest i don't have a lot of experience with diet um weight loss pills because i don't i don't encourage them yes of course um me neither i was just thinking when you said yeah I don't think it will necessarily, it may work on the neurotransmitters to do with appetite, which I'm going to talk about in a second, but I have a feeling it's actually more to do with the hormones, but okay. I could be wrong. Um, okay. Yeah, but but actually what I'll do is I'll do a, put a pin in that and I will find out the answer and I will put it in a post on Instagram. Thank so you. please do come back to our Instagram page if that's a question that is of interest to you. Um, Okay, so you've got these three nuclei all in the hypothalamus. They all work together to basically decide whether you do or don't eat. Now, it's not only just this tiny area in your brain that has an effect, but it's also uh, three hormones um, that also work centrally within your body to regulate your appetite. So there's one called leptin, and that's produced by your uh, adipose tissue, which is basically another word for for, um, your fat cells. And um, they act on receptors in the nucleus in the hypothalamus to promote a sense of fullness um but you've also then con- uh, on the other flip side you've got another hormone called ghrelin which is produced by your gastrointestinal system and that increases um that increases your sense of hunger it will reduce energy expenditure to basically keep you going and it also stimulates the release of cortisol and that's mm. important and cortisol is actually another hormone that's involved in your appetite. And cortisol you release when you're more stressed. Um, and what the reason that your body does this is because it actually helps your body to release glucose, which is your your main source of fuel. It's like it's basically sugar that your cells burn to make energy. Um, so basically, it's just to make sure that you have uh, enough energy to respond to your whatever's going on in life. Now, the thing with cortisol that you've got to be really careful of is that having chronically quite high levels of cortisol will mean that your your um your body's response to leptin which is that one that encourages um that sense of fullness um of satiety as we call it um it actually blunts that 
um, it blunts that response. So you, you, it's harder for you to feel full and satisfied. Um, and therefore, as a result, you can often find that you're reaching for foods that are high in sugar and fat, hmm. basically comfort food. Um, and it can lead to uh, an increased amount of, of accumulation of abdominal fat. And that's particularly dangerous when we're thinking about overall health and well-being. But don't panic. Like, you know, there are plenty of ways that, you know, we'll, we can cover cortisol. Cool a whole episode on cortisol in itself and how you can actually mm. lower that. Yes, please. Yes, yeah. please. Yeah, that, well, that's my number one enemy. Okay, cool. So yeah, <laughs> I get it. Yeah, it's it's basically your stress hormone and it's really important that we understand cortisol and how we can actually learn to lower it ourselves, which we absolutely can do. So that's the homeostatic side of hunger. So that's more like all your different um, kind of hormones and um, your different neurons that are involved in um, managing hunger. And that's more around the calorie side of things and actually maintaining, you know, your the status quo in your body. But you've also got the pleasure and reward aspect of mm-hmm. food. And this is a bit that I particularly find quite interesting. So... As I've mentioned, eating can be, and hopefully it is for most of us, if not everybody, is actually a really pleasurable mm-hmm. experience. And, um, you know, and, and the the way that your body responds to the pleasure of food is actually very similar to how your the circuits in your brain that respond to other things that we find pre- pleasurable, such as drug and sex. So... Although we don't does, does, we don't does the same part of the brain is it, light they're up? Overlap, yeah, they're overlapping areas. Ooh. Yeah. So um, they're ones that I've, they're maybe ones that I've mentioned before, but certainly the amygdala I've talked about before, that's associated with emotional learning. So that's where we learn to put um, behaviors together with emotions. Um, you've got other areas uh, called the ventral tegmental area, which is very key and I'm going to talk about in a second why this matters but it's got it contains neurons that have that use dopamine as their neurotransmitter mm. and dopamine is massively massively important because it signals our sense of pleasure and reward and it basically when we when we experience when we experience experience pleasure and reward to something we are mot- we are behaviorally motivated to continue seeking it out which is why things become you know, kind of addictive and why we constantly want to seek out things that bring us pleasure. Like it's, it's, it becomes a motivation. But is that sugar? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, is hugely rewarding. I, um, I heard something and I, it might have been from you or from somebody else <clears throat> that sugar in the sense of what we, the hit we get from sugar is very similar to the one from cocaine. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. If in I the sense of the part of the brain, it's the same the parts of the brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, t- like you know, with um, other with other things like that, you find pleasurable, such as, I mean, obviously we don't encourage it, but taking drugs, and yes, and sex. Um, so yeah, it's all overlapping areas, and that's why you can have addictions to food. You can mm-hmm. have addictions to drugs. You can have addictions to sex. Like it's, you can have an addiction to pretty much anything that brings you pleasure. Um, gam- mm. you know gambling can be another one although that's also to do with the high you get out of the sense of risk um, but yeah these are all overlapping areas and explains why um, you know if you imagine how powerfully addictive some things are it's very easy to imagine that you can do the same with food mm. and especially you know and, and a lot of foods like comfort foods junk foods are designed to really play on that pleasure center and to really give you that hit of dopamine which is why you want to come back to those foods again and again and again so what i want you to take away from understanding that there is a real sense of pleasure 
a real element of pleasure to eating food is that when you feel like your eating's out of control or, or you, if you're feeling that way or if you're feeling that you're leaning on comfort foods a lot, they are designed to play on this very system. Mm. So please don't sit there and think, oh my God, it's totally my fault. It's all out of control. I'm never going to be able to... Um, uh, learn to have a better relationship with food. No, it's just know that some of these foods are designed to to play on on mm. the way that your brain works. Um, and understanding how your brain works means that you have the power to m- not manipulate it, but to use it to your own advantage. Mm. That's very interesting because I read something where they were designing. <coughs> excuse me, they were designing uh, food, as you say, to play into this particular quote-unquote trap it's not a trap but you know playing in that uh, particular area of the brain to trap you into wanting more and more and more and they were saying it was something connected between the right amount of sugar salt and trans fats yeah and they, they almost like they engineered it in such a way yeah yeah yeah. they yeah totally like and that and that's um and I'm going to kind of come back to why that then becomes a continual problem as well. But absolutely, like they do design these foods, unfortunately, to really play on these areas. And therefore, you want to come back to get that same hit of dopamine. Hmm. But but this is like, you know, when these when the so although these systems are normally quite good at being what your body is amazing at is always trying to maintain balance, hmm. always. And um, what we start to see is um, it can almost have a slightly unintended negative consequence and I'm going to explain that now. So we know that we've got the um we've got this the area in the hypothalamus that's involved in uh, the homeostatics and making sure you get enough calories. Um you've then got the hormonal system that helps you balance between feeling full and feeling hungry and then you've also got dopamine that helps you feel a sense of reward. But the dopamine is more around the sense of pleasure as opposed to being purely about your metabolism mm-hmm, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But the, these systems, they can go wrong. And so what we there's some really interesting thoughts about what happens when these systems goes wrong and, and how neuroscience applies to appetite. So with obesity, for example, what they find is that, um, you know, your body's like releasing um, leptin, which, as I mentioned, promotes that sense of fullness, that sense of satiety. But actually, you're, when you're having chronically high levels of, set of leptin, perhaps because you are eating more than normal um your body can start to become really resistant to that signal a bit in the same way that your body becomes resistant to insulin when you're constantly having sugar um and as a result that your cells basically they just stop listening in in an attempt to regulate your Mm. your um body's hormonal systems um and as a result, um, your, bla- your brain becomes blunted and it just doesn't listen to leptin in the same way. So you mm-hmm. don't get that sense, same sense of fullness. That does, does eating very quickly play into this? Um, I think what eating really quickly does is that it takes time for your body to recognize that you're full. So um, as a result, it's much easier to overeat when you do eat fast, which is why as a nutritionist, like when you're trying to encourage, um, you know, regulating your appetite, like we will encourage you to try and eat slowly, eat mindfully, pay attention to the food that you're eating, because not only are you giving yourself more of a chance to enjoy the food and get that reward from the tastes mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. Um, you're also giving time for your body to recognize when you're getting full. Because what happens is, is it's not just your brain that's governing how hungry you are um, and your hormonal system. Um, and it's not just your, yeah, your brain that's, in, that's um 
deciding how hungry you are but it's also what happens is when your stomach stretches that's when it starts to mm-hmm. release hormones to let you know that you're full but for those signals to kind of coalesce into oh sorry just hit the microphone there but for that to, that to coalesce to let you know that it's full it takes time for your brain to register so that's why we always encourage you to try and eat slower mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to regulating your appetite now as uh, denise and i were just chatting about um your dopamine is really, really important. And so foods that are high in salt, fats and sugar, and um, they cause that release of dopamine. And when you get that hit, you're, 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 the way that that dopamine system is designed is that it encourages you to tr- keep trying to reach for that reward. Mm. But also when you're constantly supplying yourself with dopamine, a bit like you can get resistant to leptin, your body tries to regulate the amounts of dopamine and it starts to switch off some of the receptors. So basically like it's like you can't get your keys in the door um what do you mean so like your bait your your brain stops listening to the amount of dopamine like it shuts down the receptors so that you don't register as much which means that you're to try and get that same reward you're having to have more and more to get to build up more dopamine to hit the receptors to get that sense of pleasure um so so just I was listening to another podcast, oh, completely yes. unrelated. And How they, dare you listen to another podcast, Denise? How own, dare there's I? only hours. <laughs> no, uh, she listens to more than I me. Do. So I'm, exactly. a, I'm a podcast addict. Yes, I yes. Yeah. And in that particular, the, what you've just said resonated with, um, with my memory of that episode because they were talking about drug addiction mm-hmm. and they were talking about addiction, not of necessarily drugs, but they were talking about addiction and why over time you need more and more of a higher dose. Yep. So I assume it's a, to put it simplistically, it's, it's similar in the sense that we got used, our bodies got used to dopamine and it's like you need to re- release even more and more and more yeah, in order to get the hit. Yeah, because your brain is like shutting down receptors because it's like there's too much dopamine. I need to close receptors to maintain normal status quo in the body. And as a result, it's harder, your your brain cells are like, they, it's harder for them to hear the dopamine, which means you just need more mm. um, in order to latch onto all those receptors because that's the way that neurotransmitters work. They like they kind of like that's the neurotransmitter. I've got one hand in the ball and then the other is in like an open claw and they kind of lock together. So if it starts to shut down the receptors, your dopamine's not being registered. And mm-hmm. so you need more and more to try and get that same registration to get that same hit. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's not just we, we can't it's not just um also about these systems and how they're involved in um in uh, obesity but also how they they think you know scientists are beginning to uncover that actually these um, same systems could be um, uh, not working properly in uh, the case of eating disorders so for example with anorexia there's a thought process that perhaps there's a breakdown in um, on, in your body listening to cortisol because when you're not eating enough your cortisol le- levels go up and um, there's also a sense that there's a faulty reward system so your dopamine system isn't quite working properly plus there's a fear of food that's overriding Mm. the desire to eat so all of these things together coalesce into you know um your body's also trying it's releasing all these stress hormones because you're starving you've kind of got this fear of food plus a reward system that's not working properly and these things all coalesce unfortunately into uh, and kind of uh, contribute to the disorder although obviously there's a much wider piece around your relationship Mm. to food and all that and what food means to you and what weight means to you and all those things that i couldn't possibly cover in these five seconds 
But with bulimia and binge eating and bulimia is the way that it differs to anorexia is anorexia where there is, uh, you know, in very layman's terms is where you don't eat or you try and uh, make sure that your uh, calorie burning far exceeds what you're taking in. Bulimia is you kind of go through the cycle of binge eating and then typically purging. So you'll make yourself ill after after the fact, which I can't imagine how what well, either one is just really awful and really sad um but it's the, the with bulimia and binge eating there's also a thought that there's a faulty reward system uh when it comes to with food interestingly both these disorders have a element of impulsivity mm-hmm. so we're actually they think which i think is really interesting is is your you have a higher sensitivity to the reward of food and that's paired with less um less uh, a lower ability to inhibit certain behaviors and as i talked about in the previous episode your hypothalamus is right in the seat of in the middle of your brain and it's a very archaic part of your brain and later you develop the prefrontal cortex which is how you control all your impulsive behaviors it's basically your policing station that like instead of like throwing a glass against the wall when you're really angry you stop and take a breath that's your that's your prefrontal cortex so it's thought that actually not only are you more sensitive to the reward of food, so it feels even more rewarding, you also don't have that inhibitory control to stop you from the binging in the first place. Mm. So um, so as a result, you, um, you, you are just way more responsive to food rewards and cues and the cravings just override that homeostatic feeding mechanism. Um, and you know, you you it's much more difficult for you to overcome that temptation to eat. So I think what I wanted to take away from from all of this is that please don't feel like what I wanted to say is that the the science of appetite is far more complex than you think it is. I've talked about at least one neurotransmitter, three different hormones, and I'm not even you know, and even insulin, which you release mm. after you eat, um, in response to there being more uh, glucose in your blood. Um, insulin works to suppress your appetite. So, um, you know, it just goes to show that actually there are some really powerful forces that are at work when it comes to your appetite. And it's not a simple thing of like uh, you ha- you don't have self-control or um, there's something wrong with you per se. It's actually got some really powerful, really ingrained biochemical things that are driving your appetite as well. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't ways that you can... Um, you can learn to work with the way that your body and brain work in order to um, engage in the feeding behaviors that that you that are truly helpful and um, benefit you. Hmm. So, the, yeah, how, how would you how would you do that? So, if you if you had, um, you know, somebody as a client that is really struggling, mm. I'm not necessarily thinking about anorexia or bulimia because those are very complex. Yeah, they are. I'm just saying, you know, somebody who is maybe or more on the obese side and they don't have the best relationship with food or how would you see it from your uh, practice point of view? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think when it comes to the relationship with food, like, well, one, if we definitely did have someone with um, who we thought at any point had signs of a of an eating disorder we would always straight away refer to someone who's uh, a nutritionist who's got eating a special a special eating disorder um additional qualification because that that's an extra like i can't remember how many months or years of training Mm. um but in terms of like having a better relationship with food like i think 
you know, if we felt it was appropriate, we would absolutely refer to a therapist and say you may want to work like on the psychology side of things, but also just un- understand like what are their daily habits and what's their relationship with food actually like. And also if it's a case of like they're using dopamine as a comfort or as a reward, what are the other techniques and tools that you can use to try and get that dopamine hit mm. that don't involve food? So things like going for like exercising can raise dopamine, for example. Um, science has found that cold showers can raise dopamine as well. Cold showers? Yeah, yeah. So like having that blast of a cold shower. Is that why people take those cold showers in the morning in I the think, cold bath? Yeah, and things? yeah. Like it can raise your, it can actually raise your dopamine levels. Like people oh, get wow. a massive high from it. Um, so there are other techniques that you can employ to basically raise your dopamine levels, um, without, uh, necessarily having to engage in the feeding behaviors, but also we can work to find foods that are still really satisfying. So whether that's like, you know, we will work with your hormones. So for example, we will always look to balance your insulin levels because, and, and, in doing so, we manage your blood sugar levels and managing your blood sugar levels is so important because mm. one, it prevents you from getting, when your blood sugar levels drop, you get hangry, um, you get really irritable. I personally get super anxious. I can feel really nauseated. And when you're on a really bl- big blood sh- blood sugar high, you can often uh, still get that irritability irritability and anxiousness so what we're trying to do is prevent you from going on this roller coaster of emotional ups and downs and that will affect your feeding behavior because Mm. insulin as i've mentioned which your body releases uh when you have sugar to try and bring your sugar levels back down um it's it affects your appetite but also when your blood sugar levels um kind of skyrocket and dip it affects your cortisol levels Mm. and um when it starts to affect your stress hormone levels that again impacts your 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 feeding behavior um so you know you may find that you're reaching for example for more comfort foods um you know again it affects your appetite so what we're trying to do um what we're always trying to do is um, we're trying to also balance your hormones so that it helps to regulate your appetite that much more. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of the way that we approach it. So, you know, we, we may look to add, you know, we may also look to like, um, you know, increase the amount of, for example, to make dopamine, you need um, an amino acid called tyrosine. So you might increase tyrosine rich foods to basically encourage your body to make dopamine naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'll employ a lot of like, auxiliary techniques um to help you slowly you know learn to regulate your appetite um and and also find other ways of like raising the dopamine levels without necessarily having to reach for as many Mm -hmm, of the comfort mm -hmm. foods but these things are always a learning process right like it takes time for your brain to change and mold and what i'd always say is like you know i never do things like wham you know you've got to start this whole new thing from tomorrow what we really encourage you to do is a really step-by-step gentle process as as gentle as we can be in order to basically set you up for long-term success Mm -hmm. and what you're saying at least what i'm hearing is that there isn't one let's say culprit of you know something going wrong with our um, uh, appetite there can be a myriad of things and they all work together sometimes yeah. in to our detriment yeah and like you know it may even just be that stress for example is causing you to uh, reach out for the comfort foods because it's affecting your, you know cortisol is make you know resulting in you feeling less full so you're just reaching for more foods you're reaching for more comfort foods whether that's psychologically or because it's giving you that dopamine hit um, so it may be actually also our prescription, or not prescription, but our advice is uh, 
to lower your stress levels, which has actually got nothing mm-hmm. to do with your eating behavior, really, yeah. uh, directly. So it might be like, hey, do some more meditation. Again, going out for exercise, mm. uh, you know, doing whatever therapeutically helps you to reduce your stress levels. Mm-hmm. So it's it. there's no magic bullet. There never is, uh, there hardly ever is with nutrition. Um, it's kind of like a very holistic way of looking at what life looks like for you and how we can work to address some of the issues mm-hmm. that you have it may also be you know sleep if you're not sleeping mm, enough that mm. can affect your stress levels that will affect your metabolism um and then therefore that has an effect on your feeding behavior i i was nodding profusely because uh, <laughs> that's that's the side of the the coin that i see with in in my practice i work with people who are you know sleep deprived or insomniacs or you know uh, and then the ones that are struggling with their stress levels and with their weight and they are not, you know, they're not happy in their uh, current situation. And what I realize, I don't give nutritional advice because that is not my space and not my place to mm. do so. But what I realize with all of these um, um, indications is that one is linked to the other i.e. if you are struggling with uh, chronic insomnia, you are not really the best at managing stress. Therefore, you might not be eating the best nutrition food that you need to have. And it becomes a vicious circle. But now, through what you're saying to us and what you're educating us about, it's also the mechanics of our brains Mm -hmm. can also fail us in some ways because of the different aspects. And also like... Food manufacturers have failed us, unfortunately, and, and made these incredibly enticing, um, wonderful foods, some of which are touted as being like re- super healthy, but they have a detrimental, you know, they can have a detrimental mm. effect on your health. So, yeah, that's, but the, there's a, one other thing that I think we also forget to consider that is actually, you know, um, scientists are now beginning to examine a lot more is the gut is the gut microbiome and how Mm. that actually influences appetite as well. So just as a very quick recap, um, I think I've covered this in episode two, but, or what, no. No, I think it was four, five, five, four or five. (laughs) Sorry guys. The one where I talk a lot about the brain and how the brain and the gut are linked. Um, Your gut, you have trillions of bacteria that live in your gut. Uh, You've thousands of species and they all perform a different a slightly different function and you need a forest an ecosystem of different gut bacteria because they do a myriad of functions including helping you digest your food they help you make the majority of some of your body's neurotransmitters um they help you make certain vitamins like vitamin k for example um, and certain b vitamins so they have a hugely important role in your health and well-being including in your mental and brain health but also they can influence the amount of hormones uh, related to fullness um, and sense of satiety. And as a result, they can make you, uh, they can increase your food intake. So actually, your gut bacteria massively play a role in essentially what your appetite is doing, the secretion of those hormones, leptin, ghrelin, and insulin as well. And they can um, produce neurotransmitters like serotonin, which also affects your appetite. So there are certain bacteria uh, that can um, that can either increase or decrease leptin. Um, so it, um, and and scientists are still trying to uh, work out exactly how this works, but essentially they can affect your leptin levels. Um, they can also affect um, 
your ghrelin as well. So it can result in either more or less ghrelin being produced. So it actually can work to either increase or decrease your appetite. Um, I think with, le- with ghrelin, it seems to more at the moment uh, result in a reduced appetite. But also, um, it can affect your insulin levels. Like So actually something that you wouldn't have even thought of as being important to your appetite or actually being important apart from a very specific digestive slightly brain health role is that it actually has a massive influence on your behavior Mm. it isn't that fascinating um absolutely and what i find even more fascinating and sorry if i'm taking you on a tangent mm -mm. is that we've been more or less educated to believe that there are good and bad bacteria in our gut I mean, there are, I think there are like, there are certain species that are helpful and there are ones that that are harmful. But the caveat is that you need a balance of different bacteria because they do different jobs. And it's actually having certain, like a, a sum of certain bacteria that aren't healthy is actually kind of a good thing because your your good bacteria keeps them in check in terms of numbers. And I think it actually helps your immune system recognize that they are bad Mm -hmm. Um, but that's what i mean in the sense that they are all there for a purpose they all serve a purpose obviously when one is exceeding the others you know it becomes problematic exactly when there is an imbalance in the ecosystem yeah when the let's call a bad quote-unquote guys are running the show obviously there Mm. is something gone wrong but i think nowadays what people tend to do is that oh this is good bacteria and this is bad bacteria and they almost make like this you know um, separation distinction like they do with food oh this is a good food this is a bad food yeah and i i don't agree with with the good and the bad no it's funny you know with with most science when you get really deep into any science subject um Lay lay people through no fault of their own think there's always a black and white answer mm. to everything. So like in my day job, you'll be like, well, Mira, doesn't, uh, you know, this bacteria do this and that's good? And I'm like, yes, but. <laughs> that's <laughs> always my answer. <laughs> yes, but. In this case, blah, 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 you know, it actually means something less than helpful. And so, um, yeah, whenever you get deep into the science of any, anything, you, you realise that it's very rarely a binary answer. Just like in psychology, guys. Just like in psychology, yeah. There are many shades of grey. Yeah. I mean, like, obviously, science, you know, the way that it works on this complete tangent is that it's always looking to... Um, sci- thing to be aware, aware of in scientific research and discovery and what should be the status quo is that you can never prove something, you can only disprove. Mm. You can find lots of evidence for something being true, but you can... Scientists, any scientist worth their sort can very rarely uses if ever the word proved because you can only disprove in science um yes because we are still developing and we are still learning as as a race i'm just saying yeah we're still i mean we know more about out of space than we know about our brain yeah oh god yeah this yeah the brain is the most like undiscovered organ by a country mile Yeah. yeah so that's why i'm it i feel like that is in a way true to do for science to just disprove things oh yeah, and yeah, further yeah. develop. but i think sometimes with us the you know regular jane and joe and others we just take it as gospel and then we go on a run and we go to the pharmacy and get the product that says this is the good bacteria yeah yeah and i think like yeah, I mean, this, this, uh, do you know what? This opens up a whole debate around 
Do you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> yeah. Go on. What do you think I'm going to say? Probiotics and prebiotics. No, I was going to talk about antidepressants. Oh, but sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> no, but we should cover that in, a, in another episode um, because, yeah, there's been some really interesting bits of research coming out about that. But anyway, we'll cover that another time. Yes. Well, I did want to say, speaking of prebiotics, is um, essentially probiotics refer to they, they literally mean pro-life. So it's the bacteria that support our well-being in some shape or form. Now, you can get those in supplemental form. You can find mm-hmm. them naturally in foods uh, to help rebalance your bacteria. So things like uh, kefir, which is fermented milk. Um, kimchi. Kimchi, thank you. Uh, sauerkraut. Uh, Basically fermented kombucha. stuff. Every, yeah, exactly. Thank our you. Our ancestors were Not happy bunnies. Yeah, like, yes. like, like. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, our ancestors in the sense of our grandparents well, and great grandparents. food. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, now you can also get it in supplement form, whether it be powders or capsules or whatever. Um, but what you can also do is you can manipulate your gut bacteria uh, by actually what you eat in terms of not necessarily probiotics, but what are called prebiotics. Prebiotics are specific types of fiber that will basically feed different groups of bacteria in your gut Mm. and help them grow and proliferate. So actually, it's amazing that manipulating your diet can actually manipulate your microbiome, which is really amazing. Mm. So certain bacteria can also affect your body weight as well, Mm -hmm. um, partly through, you know, affecting all the different hormones that are in your body. And this is what they're beginning to really start to uncover. Um, And so you can do that through having different prebiotics in your diet to grow different probiotic bacteria, etc. We need an episode on that. I'm really, really, really keen to hear all about that so i think i will be taking as many notes as you are gonna be in that episode but you know what's amazing is like the gut bacteria also can affect the way that you um you know you they found that or the oral microbiome so the microbiome in your mouth affects the way that you you uh, perceive taste mm-hmm. for example it can affect the way that you process um foods relate um foods thoughts related to food mm-hmm. it affects your impulsivity and your compulsivity to eat and it's thought to actually play a role in cocaine and al- addiction and alcohol dependency. Hmm. Yeah. I, I I relate to what you've just said, minus the last sentence. I'm not addicted to either of those substances. That's good to know. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, but it's just the when I started eating slowly mm. and I applied it to anything. Yeah. Anything that passed through my lips, I said I will eat slowly. Mm-hmm. I My taste changed. Yeah. My preference for taste changed. Things that I would normally have found really, you know, dopamine enhancing. Yeah. I was just like... Yeah. And I wouldn't eat it. I, I can't eat it anymore. Mm. And I... I I think I am just the living example, and I'm sure there are more like like me out there, where when things have changed a little bit, the the microbiome in my mouth and taste buds and things like that have literally shifted. Yeah. And they're like, no, we don't like this anymore. Yeah. And I don't get the dopamine anymore from it. And the other really, for me, it was mind-boggling, is that... Um, I used to call myself not a fussy eater. Okay. And I assumed being a fussy eater is like, you know, a spoiled child that doesn't want to eat this and doesn't want to... I was I was having that image mm. whenever I heard somebody, even as an adult, if they were saying they're fussy eaters, yeah. I would imagine this kind of small child throwing the food out of, you know, the tray, yeah. not wanting to try <laughs> yeah. anything new. 
And I call myself the antidote for that. I will eat anything minus coriander. Now, Missing w- out. <laughs> yeah, now with this, with the eating slowly, with the making my own journey through, you know, establishing a better relationship with food in general, mm. I realized I am a fussy eater, yeah. but not in the sense that I imagined fussy eaters are, but in the sense of, I just don't like many things. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't enjoy them anymore. Yeah. And I don't have the dopamine hit you were just mentioning. Yeah, I think it's like, uh, yeah, I, uh, what was I going to say related to this? Now it's completely gone out of my brain. But you you can, like, I think you can really change your taste buds, whether that's down to the oral microbiome, I can't say for certain. But, like, yeah, you, you absolutely can learn to have a slightly a different relationship with food and your taste perceptions will change when you um, start to change your diet. And it could very well be through the oral microbiome, but, like, you know, if you're, if you're used to having quite sweet foods and suddenly that, no matter how sweet something is, it doesn't quite satisfy that craving. When you start to pit, like, you know, start to uh, pare back the amount of sugar that you're having, you will find things taste like overly sweet mm. and you, ju- you just don't enjoy them anymore. I am like that with cakes now. Yeah. I've, I've never had a sweet tooth. I always been more of a savory type of person. But now if you give me a, a regular cake... If I didn't make it, mm. it's overly sweet. Yeah. I Can I say something really controversial yeah. about cake? I actually don't really like cake. I know my best friend doesn't like it either. I, I just don't think there's anything like that. Don't get me wrong. I have the biggest sweet tooth and it's something that I continually have to monitor and be very aware, like, aware of. But um, yeah, like I, cake just never did it for me. I think it's a spongy texture. It's just like, what's the point? Cheesecake. I can get behind. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that Sorry, it's right into the de- microphone. De- derailing the conversation. No, no, I, I'm, I'm with you with cheesecake. I like cakes. It's probably because it's more, it's so much fattier. It's just much more satisfying. I don't know if it's about the satisfaction thing. For me, with cake, I have to be honest. I do not like Victoria's sponge cake unless it's well um, moist. I know some people hate this word. <laughs> Don't hate me for it. That's how I. That's how my taste buds grew up with Watching. with taste with uh with, you know with sponges that had had some sort of syrup in them. Mm. So they weren't dry. Yeah. They were quite, uh, um, you know, moisture was retained within the actual um, uh, composition of the sponge, and then obviously layers. Now, if you give me this kind of uh, sponge with uh, uh, some sort of just frosting or icing, mm. then you're going to kill me. I will never eat it. Ah, but if yeah. you throw in all sorts of fruits and different flavors, then I will get behind it. Nah, but just, again, yeah. I have to make it because otherwise it's overly sweet since my journey. Okay. But I sh- Sorry, this is, yeah, <laughs> total random sidebar about cake. But... um. When it comes in your practice, Mm. how you approach someone who is um, not eating or not not eating, but as in who's who's worried about their weight and wants to change. How are you like working with the psychology of that to try and help someone adapt their relationship with food? Oh, the first one I start to be, I ask them to, uh, we do different exercises to become more aware of when are these episodes happening. Mm. And the episodes I'm saying either over or under eating, because if they're unhappy with their weight, then something is 
you know, astray yeah. somewhere. And I would start with this, uh, is it a, a stress-related uh, thing or is it an emotional thing that you eat or we're trying to understand more or less the cause yeah. from a psychological point of view. And then the the next step that I almost every time say to everybody that I meet is eat slowly. Mm. The slower, the better. Make a contest with whomever you have around you, even with yourself. Just eat very, very, very slowly, as in take a mouthful, leave your you stand still on the table, chew the food and then come back, take another mouthful. Because as you were saying earlier, it takes time for the body to realize. It's full. Yeah. It's full, but also it changes your reaction to that particular food and taste. Because if you eat you know, I don't know, French fries, if you eat them very quickly and they are salty and they are the right recipe made by that particular manufacturer and mm -hmm. you're going to love them instantly and all, and you had them all, you don't really realize what you've done, what you've eaten. You didn't really register. Yeah. You didn't necessarily enjoy it because it was all very, very quick. But if you do it very slowly, you might end up realizing you don't like them that much. Yeah, I think like, that's what I would, without getting into the whole picture, because that is quite a, a long assessment that I do yeah, with people. But the first two is becoming aware and eating very slowly. Yeah, and actually there's value in really chewing your food anyway because it helps to break down, the, it helps your, um, you've got digestive enzymes in your saliva anyway, which are really important for digesting food. And also chewing it, you're, you're increasing the surface area around your food, so you actually just digest it better anyway. You digest it better, then your, you know, the overall system is happier, you enjoy the taste. And you might get the more, you know, more of a dopamine release anyway because you're yeah. actually enjoying the food. Um, and you're present with it yeah. and also from a psychological point of view you take a break yeah and that's the thing if you eat slowly not in front of the tv not while reading a book not while doing i mean we all love to think that we are multitaskers mm. no splash we're not we're not yeah we are not built as multitaskers we've developed it as a skill set but if you do one thing at a time mm. you will get better results in that particular one thing yeah yeah. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what I wanted to cover this episode. I hope it was useful. It was definitely useful. I think my takeaway is how important the, the gut microbiome is. Your gut microbiome is, yeah. So I suppose, like, what are the key things I want you to take away? Remember that appetite, there's two types of appetite. There's the metabolic, the metabolic appetite, uh, which actually is around whether you need calories because you've run out or you're not digesting anything because you, you, you are actually empty. And then there's also the pleasurable aspect to food. And don't underestimate how powerful that pull of pleasure to get that reward actually is. And that means that if you are sitting there uh, listener and you know worried about you know worried about your relationship with food or not feeling like it's where you would like it to be please don't I don't want you to sit there thinking that it's entirely your fault and that you're not you know that you're to blame or you don't have the self-control you do it just takes practice to engage it um, and it's also so, and these are also very powerful neurotransmitters that also are involved in a lot that are involved in a lot of addictive behaviors I'm not saying that you're addicted to food but I'm just saying that this is how powerful they actually are. Having said that, there are ways that you can um, 
manipulate how these hormones work in a positive way um, so that your body is listening to the signals that you're getting around fullness, around actually when you are hungry. Um, they just take um, practice and skill to employ, but they are very much doable. Um, and yeah, don't neglect your microbiome because that's also hugely important to your app- your sense of appetite as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I very, very good summary. I completely agree with everything you've said. And I would just, not just, but I would add, be kind to yourself. Whatever your relationship with food, with appetite is today, just be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't beat yourself up. That is not the right one or is not at the place that you want it to be. Just be kind and seek solutions if you think that's where you need to improve. Yeah, and and just to add to that, like even if you struggle to be kind to yourself, because I do, and my relationship with food can be very up and down, even as a nutritionist, and it's something that I'll cover at another time. Um, but what I have found is that not being kind to yourself is so unproductive. So even if it doesn't feel like I meant, like it feels very genuine. Just know that being unkind is really unproductive and it doesn't help you. No. So it serves no purpose. It serves no purpose and it takes practice. Yeah, if, of course. If, if you if you come from an unkind place to yourself, it takes practice. And we've covered that in our previous episode at length. I'm just using that word in the sense of be curious about what is happening and where you are mm-hmm. and seek help read research ask people just yeah get in touch with us yeah ask us any questions and ask us anything that you you might want uh, an answer to or if you want us to cover something specific in our next season just feel free to ask honestly yeah what's the worst thing that can happen we won't answer but i promise we will (laughs) answer (laughs) (laughs) we definitely will and uh, yeah, on that note, guys, we're going to love you and leave you this episode. Um, please don't forget to give us a like, follow us on Instagram um, or, you know, certainly subscribe to our podcast, whether that's YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. If you've got any comments for us, please give us a rating too. Um, it really helps us kind of get out there and let more people find us and of course if you've got any questions or any feedback or anything don't hesitate to get in touch we've got an email that's listed in our notes and we're also available on instagram yes and on that take care guys take care bye